Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you are listening to episode number 428 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 4, Kahootek in all its glory. Last time we left the crew after passing the midpoint of their 84-day mission. Of course, the first goal was to reach 56 days and then get multiple extensions to the 84-day limit. The next big event scheduled was the third EVA, but before that, the crew had the opportunity to speak again with Dr. Kahutek, the discoverer of the comet, and I'm going to play that conversation now. Uh, standing in for the other Kahutek PIs, we have Dr. Robish Kahutek, the discoverer of the comet, and he'd like to ask you a few questions when you're ready. Over. Uh, Roger, Houston, we're ready to go. Good afternoon, Dr. Kulotek. Good afternoon. I am very glad to have an opportunity to following the Comet 1973F during its most critical day, during its perihelion passage, and uh, from the place where most research of that comet is concentrated. Especially, it is a great pleasure for me to greet you, Mr. Gibson, Mr. Kerr, and Mr. Pork, as the first human being studying a comet from outer space. Your mission is indeed very important for astronomy. I have the following questions. Uh, You observed the comet visually last Sunday and Monday. You compared it uh, in brightness with Mercury and suggested that there were color features in the coma. Do you have anything more to say on those observations? Uh, not too much to add to that, sir, because uh, we have not seen much of the comet visually since those last observations. Uh, the one time in which I was the one who observed the color, uh, I have not seen the comet since. Uh, the next time I saw the comet was uh, on the uh, SO-52 white light coronagraph. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And how about the tail, for example? Uh, the tail we have found, uh, as it becomes more foreshortened uh, to us, uh, became much wider, and uh, 
Uh, let me uh, let me give you uh, figures that are uh, relative to the display we have on the ATM. I would say that the uh, the coma, the bright coma, was approximately uh, three sixteenths, one eighth to three sixteenths of an inch in diameter. And um, I would say that the tail that we could see, however foreshortened, uh, extended only about one quarter inch away from the coma, and. Uh, spread like a fan to uh, approximately three-eighths of an inch at its out, uh, outermost end. Uh, have you glimpsed to the comet since Monday, I mean visually? Uh, no, sir, we have not. Um, how is the brightness changing from day to day? Uh, you are the only people uh, you see this comet at present, and therefore your information is very valuable. Unfortunately, we are not able to see it by eye. We can only tell by what we see on the white light chronograph display. That uh, display has indicated that the brightness certainly is increasing. The display itself has a um, filtering function, which uh, allows, the, uh, allows you to see the corona much better, so that it's a factor of 100 from the uh, edge of the occulting disk all the way out to the edge uh, of the display. So we were only able at the uh, very beginning, very close to the edge of the display. Now we can see it pretty much right up next to the, uh, uh, fairly close to the occulting disk, so I'm sure we're at least up a factor of 10 from that when we first saw it, and perhaps greater than that. Yes, uh, thank you very much for a most interesting talk. Uh, let me congratulate you upon the accomplishment you have achieved uh, so far, and wish you the best of success in your further observations and uh, flawless splash down in February. Thank you very much. Dr. Kohotek, on behalf of the uh, Skylab 3 crew, I'd like to tell you that we're honored to have this opportunity to speak to you, sir, and we'll do our best to get the best data we possibly can. Good day, sir. On December 29, 1973, just four days after the Christmas EVA, Carr was back outside this time with Gibson, for the third EVA. It lasted 3 hours and 39 minutes. The goal was to repeat the comet observations and to retrieve a piece of the airlock module micrometeoroid cover for return to Earth. Gibson encountered ice during this EVA, this time on his suit, due to a small coolant water leak. Turn the lights off, Bill. 
Oh, yeah, beautiful. Sure can. Skylab, we're enjoying your comments. We're 30 seconds from LOS here, about 28 minutes to Carnarvon at 1803. All your systems are good. Okay, okay, we can see the tail, which is anti-solar, but I cannot see the spike which showed up yesterday on the photography. Okay, it's just going into yeah. the airglow now. Just going into the airglow. Very wide, broad tail. Not very long, as well as, good well as we can see. Well, we were not too well dark adapted there. Jerry, we'll have to make a note of that next time. Yeah. Okay, that tail, I guess, uh, I was looking at five degrees or so when I first spotted it. Okay, it's into the airglow now. I suspect that's the reason you couldn't see it the other day is because it was always in the airglow. Yeah, we got a better elongation now. I suspect we ought to see that out the window. I looked at that, yet, looked for it yesterday out uh, window three and couldn't see it. Okay, let's press the on. Turn the lights on. Although brief, that was probably one of the best views of the comet with the naked eye. The third EBA was considered very successful. Two days later, January 1st, 1974, NASA gave the astronauts a New Year's Day wake-up call. In fact, this crew was the first to celebrate a new year in space 17 times as they orbited the Earth and moved through the time zones. Shortly after the celebration, a live news conference was held. I'm going to play the clip for that, but I wanted to mention that the astronauts referred to the S-193 experiment, which is the radar scatterometer measurements. Here's the clip. Uh, as you're undoubtedly aware, this is the, the first Calab 4 live news conference. I have a list of questions here which have been prepared 
by the news representatives to the Johnson Space Center, working through their news media pool. I'll be reading them off to you verbatim and in the order that's requested by the newsman. Over. Okay, we're ready to go. Okay, first question for you, Jerry. You are past the halfway point now. What have been the flight's main accomplishments, and do you feel you'll go the full 84 days? Over. Uh, the flight's main accomplishments, I think, have been the, uh, the accomplishment of the uh, EVAs. Uh, I think one of the prime accomplishments was to uh, get the S-193 running. We're real uh, happy we got that going, and that uh, certainly does enhance the uh, Earth Resources uh, situation. Uh, we've got a, a second load of film in for the ATM work, and uh, we have our uh, outside Kahootek uh, observations done uh, uh, right close to perihelion. I think those are really uh, uh, some of the main uh, uh, mileage uh, milestones that we had to look forward to. What does the crew hope to accomplish in the second half of the mission? Over. Oh, yes. Uh, second half of the mission, uh, what we hope to accomplish. We want to continue the uh, observations, of course, of the Apollo telescope mount. Uh, we will be shortly resuming the uh, intensified op uh, observations with our Earth Resources instrument. And we also have a large number of corollary experiments and uh, educational experiments or student experiments, uh, which we uh, hope to um, uh, complete. I think that uh, some of the major uh, maintenance activities are out of the way. Uh, we uh, shortly will be uh, concluding the most intensified portion of the cometary observations, and that will be behind us. We'll be concentrating on the Apollo telescope mount and the Earth resources. Okay. For Ed, while staring out the window, you've remarked about visualizing life on other worlds. Uh, please elaborate. And have your feelings been heightened by this flight? Over. Okay, Bruce, uh, and uh, to the folks who uh, came up with this question, uh, actually this is one, I guess, which would make a lot of people uh, raise their eyebrows, and uh, what I uh, said at the time was that it makes you uh, speculate perhaps a little bit more in your own mind, because you're much more conscious of the many different star systems that there are out there. Uh, when you're looking out here, you see the Earth as, uh, as one unit, you see the Sun as a star, and you see all the other stars out there and you realize that uh, the universe is quite big and just the number of uh, possible combinations that you could have out there which would create life uh, all of a sudden enters your mind and makes it seem very much more likely. Uh, I don't think that that is any different than uh, people have thought down on the ground. It's just that uh, being up here and being able to see the stars as you can and uh, look back at the Earth and see your own sun as a star makes you much more conscious of that. All right, thank you, Ed. Back to Jerry. You said you're keeping notes on your impressions of the Earth. What are some of these impressions? Over. Well, I think uh, the most uh, startling impression to me, I always thought of the Earth as a very green and verdant uh, planet. And uh, when you're uh, going over some of the desolate areas we've seen, uh, I suddenly have gotten a, a very strong impression, as I mentioned in the Christmas message, is that uh, I've become aware of all the desolate areas there are around the Earth, and it's become apparent to me that man is kind of huddled in uh, just a few corners of the Earth, that the Earth is really uh, uh, a whole lot bigger uh, than we thought. And uh, I tried in my Christmas message there to kind of compare our impressions, or my impressions anyway, with those impressions of the Apollo crews, who said the Earth is very small. And uh, the fact that man has to 
stay in the temperate areas and uh, and really work uh, in his environment kind of makes me feel that we're going to have to spur on our efforts to uh, really uh, get in tune with our environment. Roger on that. Back to Ed. Some earlier Skylab crewmen have reported brief periods of irritation with one another. Has there been any sign of this on your flight, over? No, I don't think so, uh, Bruce. I think uh, all three of us have been uh, pretty much up against the same things and uh, we're cooperating and trying to get the best out of the mission and, uh, and meeting those uh, various obstacles that we come up against. So I think we've run together pretty well and uh, I think we're all pretty proud of that fact. Uh, Roger, we've got about 52 seconds to LOS here. Uh, let me throw one more out uh, as we go over the hill to you, for all three of you. Uh, aside from your families, what do you miss most about being away from the Earth? Over. I think good, good uh, food. An ability to eat anytime you want to. I, I miss that more than anything. I think what I miss is uh, going right back to Jerry's point, uh, the ability to uh, to recoup at the end of the day and uh, to be able to uh, analyze where you're going the next day and to be able to take uh, a really a fresh, creative approach in the, the things you're doing. I think essentially uh, that's what I miss the most too. I miss the opportunity to just sit down and, uh, and relax. Uh, and of course, with my family at home, uh, I could come home and just take it easy and be with them. Uh, I miss football and I miss a good cold can of beer while I'm watching the game. On January 4th, the crew surpassed Pete Conrad's accumulated time in space and headed for Al Bean's record. Deke Slayton got on the comm to congratulate them. And if you guys have got a little little time, the boss, uh, Deke, would like to talk to you for a minute. For him, we've got the time. Okay, Darren, guys, good morning. I've got the... Uh honor of congratulating you guys on transitioning from the first rookie crew since early Germany to the second most veteran crew in the solar system. I was about to say universe, but I don't think we could prove that. As of about uh, three minutes ago, you guys uh, surpassed Pete Conrad's record in time, which it took him four flights to accumulate. So if that doesn't make you veterans, nothing will. Uh, you're about five-eighths of the way through the mission, rough and dirty. And uh, as far as we're concerned down here, you're doing an outstanding job all the way. We're really happy with the way the mission's going. I think we've probably sandbagged you on a couple occasions on schedules that you're aware of. As far as the uh, future's concerned, Dick gave you a pretty good rundown on the constraints uh, and et cetera uh, the other evening. I wouldn't enlarge on those. I guess it's my opinion that we will probably have more trouble keeping you busy in the future than the other way around. We will make every effort to ensure that it doesn't go either way, however. Just keep up the good work up there, stay loose, and enjoy it. I think uh, if you keep going the way you've been going, why, it'll be one of the best missions we've ever seen. Well, Deke, thanks a lot. We sure appreciate hearing from you. And uh, though things did get a little rough there at the beginning, uh, we feel pretty good now. You've been doing great work. Let's keep it up. Thanks a lot, Deke. Those are real good words. It's nice to hear them. Thanks, Deke. We sure appreciate it. Good hearing from you. Okay. I know you're having a lot more fun up there than we are down here, so stay with it. 
Roger that. On January 10th, mission planners were evaluating the situation concerning Skylab's gyros and consumables during a 56-day mission review. The following day, the crew received the good news that they had been officially approved for seven more days in space and unofficially cleared to surpass Bean's record, the 70-day target, and set a new endurance record of 84 days, the full 12 weeks planned at the beginning of the mission. Just 48 hours later, they surpassed the Skylab 3 duration of 59 days, 11 hours. Here's the official NASA press release. Quote, Crew cleared for another week in space. The three Skylab astronauts, now in their 56th day in orbit, today were given a go-ahead for seven additional days. For the remainder of the mission, weekly evaluations of the hardware, consumables, and crew will be made by NASA officials. The first such weekly review was completed this afternoon. William C. Snyder, Skylab Program Director, said the crew are in good spirits and excellent physical condition, and the spacecraft is in good shape to continue. Originally, the three Skylab manned missions were planned successively for one of 28 and two of 56 days. The first mission lasted 28 days, the second was extended to 59 days, and the third was then planned as an open-ended 60-day mission with consumables aboard to provide for as many as 85 days. End quote. Naturally, a matter of concern for the mission planners revolved around the depleting supplies aboard Skylab. From the start, the food inventory posed a challenge as it wouldn't suffice to prolong the mission as desired. Additionally, the eagerness of scientists to include their experiments after Skylab 3's success further restricted available cargo space on the command module, which transported the ailing Skylab crew. Faced with a scarcity of food on the station and limited capacity to carry additional supplies, an inventive solution became imperative. So, they came up with one. Food bars. When the crew launched, they carried food bars with them. These were nutritional bars developed jointly by NASA, the U.S. Air Force, and the Pillsbury Company. Gibson recalled, quote, The difficulty with staying up that long was that we had only enough food for 56 days and too many experiments to take up in the command module, which was already overloaded. So we volunteered, actually agreed, that every third day we would eat nothing but food bars. That was probably one of the most supreme sacrifices anyone has ever made for the space program by a crew person. Food bars. Every third day, we each consumed four of these little guys. Breakfast, which lasted about 30 seconds, consisted of four or five crunches, and that was it. There was no more. Meals over. I still have a tough time looking a food bar in the face. But the bars worked, and we stayed. They had 
all the minerals and calories that we needed. It was not an ideal way to live, but they did work. End quote. However, the lack of one item really bothered Gibson. He said, quote, You just can't overestimate the value of a good butter cookie. We had an economic system on Skylab whose basic monetary unit was the butter cookie. But when we got up there, most of our money had been consumed previously by both the hungry Marine, Lausma, and the Skylab 1 commander, Conrad. It caused runaway deflation in the Skylab economy. End quote. CDR Houston, uh, sometime this afternoon I'd like to get uh, back to the case of the butter cookies with you. I have a couple of questions before I can a- answer your question directly. Go ahead, Dick. Yeah, okay. Uh, first of all, of course, the butter cookies appear on your on your menu cue cards uh, with an asterisk uh, on them. And uh, we think that uh, the butter cookies on board are just enough to satisfy that requirement. However, we'd like you to verify in locker F-563, in the rear of it, we think that uh, there are some small cans numbered 22-26 through 22-32. And uh, you might have a look in there, and uh, we'd like to verify that those butter cookies have been removed. If they have been removed, then the answer is uh, there are no overage ones. If there are any in those cans, and the numbers again were 22-26 through 32, then those would be overage, over. Okay, I'm pretty sure we got those out, but I'll check. That locker again was 6-7. Uh, well, Dick, I guess I need my sad music for this report. Go ahead. Well, there aren't any more butter cookies, I guess, and uh, I guess by this time tomorrow, it'll be in withdrawal. <laughs> Roger, I understand. Would you like to uh, pass any special message to Bean's crew and Conrad's crew on the subject? I don't have anything, but Ed might. <laughs> okay, well, sorry about that. I'll have to give him a sedative tomorrow night. Okay, take care of him. Despite having 80 days' worth of food bars every third day, mission protocols mandated that the crew adhere to their Skylab diet for 21 days before the mission, even upon their return to Earth at the mission's conclusion, there was no break. Post-flight procedures demanded an additional 18 days following the Skylab 4 food bar diet plan. Other supplies were also running out. Bill Pogue recalled, quote, In mid-January 1973, when we were enjoying one of our days off, I was looking down at the Earth, Ed was at the Apollo telescope mount, and Jerry was doing an inventory of our remaining supplies. He floated down to his sleep compartment and left a message on the B-channel tape recorder for the ground folks. Jerry was telling them that he had discovered a shortage of approximately 10 urine sample containers, which we had each used every morning to replace our individual containers that we filled the day before. 
A part of this task was to draw off and put 122 milliliters, about the size of a large ice cube, into the sample receptacle, placing the urine sample into a freezer and put the used urine storage bag into a trash bag for later dumping into the Skylab dumpster. The next day, Capcom called with a solution. We were to change out the urine bags every 36 hours instead of every 24 hours. Using this procedure would ensure the remaining sample containers would last to the end of the mission. We followed this makeshift procedure, and everything worked out fine. Still, we couldn't understand how the shortage had occurred because the people who prepared the mission equipment were highly competent. The waste sampling was to support a mineral balance study conducted by the National Institute of Health, and the principal investigator, Don Whedon, was most meticulous and careful. Once we got back to Earth, we forgot the whole thing. Two months after our return, the astronaut office had a pin party for those Skylab astronauts who had made their first flight into space. The party is essentially a shindig where the backup crews roast the prime crews for many of their goofs and screw-ups during the training and flight. The prime crews swallow hard, thank the backup crews for all their hard work, respond with good-natured humility and perhaps a few light-hearted jests of their own, and then make special individual presentations to their backup crews. Jerry, Ed, and I just about fell out of our chairs when Al Bean presented the missing urine sample containers mounted on a plaque with a personal dedication plate to each backup crewman. We looked at each other and burst out laughing. The mystery of the purloined pea bags had been solved. They had been taken mistakenly by Al when the second crew returned to Earth. Of course, we all quizzed Al and his crew about why they had developed a personal attachment to our pea bags. End quote. Around this time in the mission, trash and cleanliness became a bigger issue. Since this was the third mission to Skylab, cleanliness became a greater challenge than ever. Bill Pogue recalled, quote, as on Earth, a lot of trash accumulated during the day, including food packaging, tissues, wet wipes, dirty towels, and washcloths. Most of this trash was immediately shoved through a push-through slot into a waste container. However, bits of skin, fingernails, hair, food crumbs, odd pieces of paper, and the like tended to drift around and eventually were sucked up against the air filter screens. We used vacuum cleaners to clean off these screens, which took care of most of the problem. The worst mess was in the area where we ate. Small drops of liquid from our drinks and crumbs from our food would float around until they stuck on the wall or in the open grid ceiling above our food table. The grid and the area above it became quite dirty after three missions. Although we could see into the ceiling area, 
we couldn't get our hands in to wipe it clean, so it became progressively worse throughout the mission. Near the end of the flight, it began to look like the bottom of a bird cage. I just stopped looking at it. Every two weeks, we wiped down the walls and surfaces of the toilet with a biocide disinfectant to prevent a buildup of microorganisms such as germs or mold. End quote. Ed Gibson added, Like the other crews, Skylab 4 crew used the shower on board. Although we found that a washcloth, soap, and water followed up with a towel were perfectly good for maintaining satisfactory hygiene in zero gravity, we also tried out the shower that Bill Snyder, our Skylab program director, had worked so hard to get on board. He and others deserved that we each give it a fair try in evaluation. Granted, it took a lot of time to set up and tear down but I found it both interesting and refreshing. Because of its limited hot water supply, it was like taking a shower with a Windex bottle. A smidgen of hot water was used to get wet and soap up. The remaining smidgen was used to try to rinse off. The little hand vacuum, which was supposed to be used to remove the liquid, was awkward and difficult to use to reach all body parts. So I tried shaking like a dog, which sprayed most of the liquid to the inside surface of the shower enclosure and then used the vacuum to clean it all up. I concluded that the whole procedure had to be made simpler and faster, analogous to passing through a car wash in two or three minutes if we are to have a shower on future stations. Nonetheless, we were appreciative that it was on board and we had a chance to use it. End quote. As the final of three missions unfolded, the crew faced increasingly difficult challenges due to the steady deterioration of the station's condition. The team had been responsible for maintenance and repairs since before the initial crew arrived, and the looming possibility of additional malfunctions was a perpetual worry. Bill Pogue recalled, quote, Below the hydrogen tank in the third stage of our Saturn V, our pressure habitable volume was the liquid oxygen tank, or the LOX tank, which was about the volume of a one-car garage, 2,500 cubic feet, and served as the Skylab trash dump site, or dumpster. Without it, life on board Skylab would have been altogether different, just as life in our own homes on Earth would be different if we had to keep our trash inside, had no garage, and our trash pickup stopped. There was the constant threat that we would lose access to our dumpster, and our habitable volume would gradually fill up with our trash, which included biodegradable garbage and waste food residue, and urine bags. Our access to our dumpster was through an airlock, the trash airlock. We compacted our garbage as much as possible, placed it in a special bag, put it into the TAL, closed the lid, opened the TAL to the vacuum of the LOX tank, shoved the bag out and into the tank, and then repressurized the trash airlock 
to the pressure of our habitable volume for the next use. The lid on the trash airlock began to cause difficulties on the second mission. The hatch became more and more difficult to latch in the closed position. On our mission, the problem became more severe and we were desperate to keep the trash airlock working. We finally worked out a system whereby Jerry would load the trash bag in the bin of the trash airlock and I would float above holding onto the ceiling. As he pulled the lever to lock the hatch closed, I would push myself down sharply and stomp on the hatch lid while Jerry closed the locking lever. Voila! Was it a barnyard procedure? You bet. But it worked. End quote. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 428 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 4, Kahootek in all its glory. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, December 16th. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. Well, it's the Christmas season once again, and I would like to give a bonus award to my donors. If you gave $100 or more this year and did not get a magnet, email me and we will send you one. We're running low in the standard magnets, so it may be the archive magnet since we have more of those. Also, if you gave $50 to $99 this year and you want a sticker, just email me with your address and we will send one out. The deadline for this is December 31st, 2023. My email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 247 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. Have to put Archive in there. If you sh- it, it should be available on most podcasters. And remember, put the word Archive at the end or you probably won't find it. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow me on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash space rocket history. Okay, and afterthoughts. As always, I apologize for my mispronunciations, and I would also like to apologize for the poor quality of some of the audio clips. The astronauts' signal would tend to go in and out sometimes, and they got a little soft, and I apologize for that. A key goal of the third EVA was to observe the comet Kahootek, and the astronauts got their best view by the naked eye when they stepped outside on that third EVA, as you could tell by their reaction. Now, could you imagine living off of food bars every third day before, during, 
and after the mission. That would not have been pleasant. I'm telling you, these guys were dedicated. But an economy based on butter cookies. Well, I I guess you can eat them at least. It's kind of similar, I think, to what I've seen on the movies. Uh, uh, Prisoners in prison, they trade cigarettes or something like that as currency. That's what I've heard anyway. (laughs) But it sounded like uh, Ed had a real addiction to those cookies. He was going to have to be sedated to go to sleep without his cookie. (laughs) I think that was joking about that. It must have been tough, though, being the last mission where everything was running out and even the trash was getting full. (laughs) And it was getting pretty uh, nasty in there with the the, uh, food particles and hairs and fingernails (laughs) and everything else and skin and All that stuff. Oh, my goodness. I found the urine bag story (laughs) quite amusing, especially when they found out that Al Bean had taken the bags. (laughs) It seems like (laughs) something like that would always occur with Al. Remember Skylab 3 and all the oopsies he had? (laughs) Okay, finally, in personal news, my mother-in-law continues to improve. The swelling continues to diminish. The ribs are feeling better, but she still needs the Tylenol. There were, there have been no more setbacks with her heart. She even was able to come to Thanksgiving dinner, which was amazing to me. Of course, she continues to require 24-7 accompaniment that has been split up between my wife and her sister. Hopefully, hopefully, in a couple of weeks, that will ease up because it is really dragging them to do that. Okay, moving on to financial support. Over the past fortnight, we received five new donations and pledges. I would like to thank a very generous person who prefers to remain anonymous, and I would like to thank James M. from Illinois, who donated at the anonym, at the Orion level and earned a Nova emoji. Woody J. from Minnesota donated at the Apollo level and earned a Galaxy emoji. Stephen S. from Washington donated at the Mercury level and earned a Moon emoji. And Jim S. from California increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mere ISS level. Patreon is currently at 231, so we are back to where we were last month, October, at this time. Just waiting for more credit cards to expire as the month changes. (laughs) This happens every month. And we get back most of them, but some of them we don't. Our total unique donors... uh, by that, I mean the donors that haven't donated more than once. And I really appreciate donors that have donated more than once. Thank you very much. But I'm counting just the unique donors here, which includes the Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2023 have reached 347. 
To put that number in context, in 2019, before the dark times, before the vid, we had 487 donors. In 2020, we had 443. In 2021, we had 444. And in 2022, we had 380, another big drop. Right now, we are at 347 unique donors. I lowered the goal to 400 last time, but I think I'm going to lower it again to 380, the same as 2022. Now, that will be tough to get in the final month here. But goals are supposed to be difficult, so we'll, we'll leave it at 380 and hope for the best. If you are enjoying this podcast that's been running for 10 and 3 quarter years without commercial interruptions, and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check, donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now is a good time to begin the emoji maneuver. As we enter the end of the year, you can quickly earn a longevity emoji next to your name on the donors page. The idea is to make a donation now and a donation in January for the next year and earn a rocket emoji or advance to the next emoji in your collection in less than two months. Doesn't that sound great? It does to me. If you are unable to support financially, it would help if you can retreat, retweet this post on Twitter, now known as X, or repost my Facebook post, or, you know, what's even more helpful is if you write a good five-star review on, the, on your podcatcher. Like, uh, Spotify would be especially helpful because I don't have that many reviews there. So if you're a listener on Spotify, maybe I don't have that many listeners on Spotify. That might be the issue there. But if you can, just give, uh, give me a five-star on Spotify. That would help out a lot. You don't have to write anything if you don't want to. And uh, iTunes, that was another good spot, too. Or just wherever you listen. I appreciate those five-star reviews. They are helpful. Now, uh, Mrs. SRH is with her mother today, so I'm going to do this week's donor giveaway. The winner... For this episode, we'll get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of the, of the Google random number generator, Mrs. SRH selected Daniel Smith. Daniel Smith, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. To tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all of you uh, 347 who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Skylab, Our First Space Station by Leland Bailu, Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia.
And that is all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 429 posted on or about December 16th. So long for now.